0: Welcome to Double Truck Stories, the home to some of the best features, investigations, and character portraits from across ESPN. I'm Mike Philbrick, your host for the Double Truck Stories podcast. Remember to subscribe to Double Truck Stories podcast on the ESPN app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. In baseball, we praise the All-Stars and debate the Hall of Famers, but those players are in the minority. For most MLB careers, they are stories of unfinished business, stories of careers stalled by injury, attitude, or in the case of Luke Haggerty, the yips. That's right, an ailment of the mind where your body just can't seem to do something it had been doing for years. For Haggerty, though, his story didn't end. After years away from the game, he refined an unrelenting drive with a delicate mental surrender to what he could no longer control, then parlayed that into a reunion with the Chicago Cubs to finish his story where it started. Stick around after the story for my conversation with ESPN's Jeff Passan as we talk about how it's never too late to dream out loud. Now we present Luke Haggerty's Improbable Comeback Story by Jeff
1: Passon. The Haggerty household, located in a small Ohio town named Defiance, operates under a short but firm set of tenets. The first involves work. Haggerty's work. Hartzell Dodger, Bretta Haggerty's father, worked afternoon shifts in a coal mine when he was playing college football and basketball. Gene Haggerty, John Haggerty's father, worked in the steel mill in Steubenville. John Haggerty still works, the past 23 years as a journeyman millwright at the GM plant. Nothing he and Bretta taught their three children was as important as how work, and the honor of it, carried the family from generation to generation. Luke Haggerty, the eldest of the siblings, learned about work through sports. He played everything, though baseball came most naturally. When other kids struggled to throw strikes, he feathered the ball over the plate with uncanny ease. He didn't exactly love the game and he knew next to nothing about it. Before his senior year, when Haggerty was going to quit and focus on basketball, his high school baseball coach, Tom Held, told him that standing six foot seven and throwing left handed was unique. Really? Haggerty responded. He could play baseball in college if he worked, Held said. So Haggerty did and Ball State offered him books and a spot on the team. And when he got there, someone told Haggerty he could be a first-round pick if he threw 94 miles per hour. His fastball sat at 82 miles per hour at the time, so he spent the next three years building up his arm, adding a tick here or there. By his junior year, he threw 94. The Chicago Cubs chose him with a 30-second pick in the first round of the 2002 draft and gave him more than $1 million to sign. Haggerty went to the Cubs' affiliate in Boise, Idaho and dominated and it was supposed to be the start of a meteoric rise, with team officials telling him he could be in the major leagues by next September. He chuckles at that now, the salad days, before he lost the ability to do what was so fundamental, throw a baseball. Before he really learned what it meant to work, and before he had any idea what he could be, and before he was 37 years old, sitting in a hotel room on the outskirts of Seattle, 12 years removed from his last pitch in organized baseball, unable to sleep, his mind racing at 2 a.m., wondering if he actually could convince a room of scouts that he wasn't just some crazy old man who thinks he can still pitch. Every day, Luke Haggerty woke up and said the same thing. I'm going to be fine. This was all a bad dream. Opening his eyes would end it. He forgot how to pitch in an instant. He would remember just as quickly. He said this in 2005 and then in 2006. And on into 2007, and for the last time in 2008, when baseball gave up on him. Haggerty had gone to spring training with the Cubs in 2003, full of promise, and left on a plane to Alabama, where Dr. James Andrews diagnosed him with a torn ulnar collateral ligament in his pitching elbow. Tommy John's surgery kept Haggerty out for 2003 and most of 2004. His arm hurt throughout the rehabilitation. He forged ahead. When the Cubs did not add him to their 40-man roster that offseason, the Florida Marlins acquired Haggerty during the Rule 5 draft, in which teams poach young, usually flawed players. Haggerty's fastball had lost its zip upon his return. The Marlins wanted him anyway. Early in spring training, before he was set to throw a live batting practice session, Haggerty surveyed the field. He saw Miguel Cabrera, Carlos Delgado, Mike Lowell, Paul Duca, Luis Castillo. All of them were all-stars. Typically, prior to throwing, Haggerty would visualize what he wanted to happen. When he closed his eyes that day, he saw himself hitting the batter with a pitch. Just like that, his ability to throw a baseball over a 17-inch wide plate vanished. Whatever you want to call the malady, the yips, the thing, the monster, it attacks like a snake that coils itself around its prey. It squeezes and squeezes and squeezes, and then it swallows what's left whole. It consumed Steve Blass, Mackie Sasser, Chuck Knobloch, Rick Ankeel. Countless others no one knows because, like Haggerty, they never made it. I usually tell people it's like your signature, Haggerty says. You know how to write your name. Someone gives you a piece of paper and a pen and you can write it. Maybe there's variance. It was like someone gave me a pen and it was scribble all over the paper. It made no sense. The yips are an exercise in loneliness. Nobody is quite sure what to do, what to say. I don't know if someone told me how to act, just act like everything's normal, says Mark Reed, one of Haggerty's catchers in 2005 with Class A Boise, where Haggerty went after the Marlins sent him back to the Cubs. I remember having to stay in the squad. The ball is flying over fences and into nets and onto fields. I knew I had to be ready to be a hockey goalie, but also be ready to jump up and dive for something. I never wanted to show it. I just wanted to be prepared to make him look like Dude, it's no big deal. I wanted him to feel like, You're not that far off. You're not that far off. It was preparing for the worst. But when he'd throw four or five balls to the backstop, getting it to him and making it seem like it was all good, he knew exactly what he was going through. You see the guy trying as hard as he can and not having a clue where it's going to go. I felt so bad for the guy. All I heard about him was greatness. That year, Haggerty threw six and two-thirds innings. He walked 30, allowed 14 hits, threw nine wild pitches, and hit four batters. He turned himself into a test subject to conquer it. Coaches set up targets behind Haggerty's back, and he whirled 180 degrees and tried to hit them. They wanted to detach his thoughts from learned physical behaviors. That didn't work. Neither did the conversations with sports psychologists or private throwing sessions away from teammates in batting cages or anything else. One time, when he was starting a game, Haggerty threw two warm-up pitches and then waved off the catcher. I'm good, he said. I'm ready. His left hand was shaking. He was scared to throw any more warm-ups. The next season was no better. With Class A Daytona, Haggerty threw three innings and walked nine batters. The Cubs stuck with him anyway. There would be days, Reed says, when the wildness would abate. The misses wouldn't miss by as much. Haggerty would leave throwing sessions upbeat. This is it. This is the turning point. This is where the work pays off. And then he would be so wild pregame he worried he was going to hit a hot dog vendor with a ball. During the offseason, Haggerty returned to defiance. Held ran a fall ball camp for local kids in which he taught the fundamentals of throwing. Haggerty attended, next to middle schoolers who looked half his size. He did drills on one knee, trying to remember how to throw. In 2007, the Cubs suggested he play independent ball with the Rockford Riverhawks. He walked eight in one and a third innings. The next year, he went into camp with the Chicago White Sox. They caught him mid-spring. Haggerty latched on with the Schaumburg Flyers, an indie ball team about 30 miles west of Chicago. He lasted eight games. As long as they're not telling me to go home, I'm going to come, Haggerty says. We did early work, we did late work, we did all kinds of stuff. Working's easy when you know how to do it. People would have quit, I just couldn't quit. I didn't care. Of course I was embarrassed and everything, but I couldn't quit. I'm going to figure this out. I don't know what it is, I'm gonna get this. It's gonna be fine. We'll be back to normal. We'll be good. Haggerty tried to find logic where it didn't exist. He called his mom one day. He was sitting on a hot curve, holding a sack lunch waiting for a van to pick him up and take him to a game. Bretta never allowed her children to feel sorry for themselves. If there's a problem, she always said, work through it. You know what, Luke? She said. If you want to get to the good stuff, you've got to crawl through that muck. There's a lot of ways to go. Apparently yours is digging a tunnel to China and back. After Schomburg released Haggerty, the calls stopped. So did the bromides. Nobody was telling him he would figure it out anymore. He had taken solace, or at least as much solace as someone so broken can take from those words. He remembers O'Neary Fleeta, then the Cubs' farm director, telling Haggerty sometime around 2006 that when he beats the Yips, Fleeta simply wants to be in the movie about it. You feel so bad for people like that, Fleeta says now. Your heart bleeds when someone is dealing with that. Anything to motivate him. Anything to make him feel like he can see that light. Because man... Who has ever come back from it? Haggerty needed a break from baseball after 2008. He didn't want to watch it, listen to it, hear about it. A year earlier, he had met a cancer researcher named Rachel Rempel. They got married in May 2009, by which time Haggerty was back in school, studying at Arizona State's College of Health Solutions. He passed his test to be a certified strength and conditioning specialist and bounced around a few gyms in the Phoenix area before coming to terms with his future. When you have a dream and a purpose to be a baseball player, that is your life, Rachel says. I don't know if that ever goes away. That's part of the challenge when it does. It's like your identity. You can't get rid of that. When he started X2 Athletic Performance in Scottsdale, Haggerty figured most of his clients would be baseball players. What that meant, of course, was he would need to pick up a baseball again. The first time Haggerty touched the ball after his career ended, nothing mystical happened. No jolt of lightning up his arm or tingling sensation. This was work. This was his job. A gangly teenager who came in to train named Austin Davis would throw the ball to Haggerty, and Haggerty would throw it to him. And it didn't exactly seem natural to Haggerty, but it wasn't foreign either. His left hand didn't tremble. The ball came out firm enough. Nobody there could tell he had the yips. As he threw more, Haggerty felt more comfortable showing off his arm strength. His students marveled. He could hit 94 again. They encouraged him to come back. He shrugged. Maybe. Maybe someday. He and Rachel had a newborn daughter, Elon. He went to throw one afternoon in August 2012 with the Sonoran Explorers in the defunct Freedom Pro Baseball League. And in a quick and dirty Facebook post, he said he felt better than he had since his first season with the Cubs. It's time for the real Luke to make an appearance. It's been ten years, but I found him. It's about to get nasty. The real Luke, or at least that version, wasn't particularly nasty. Haggerty needed more for X2. He wanted it to be Phoenix's most progressive facility. He was an early adopter of teaching using programs with overweight and underweight balls to promote gains in velocity. He searched online for a four-ounce ball and found the website of Driveline Baseball a small, performance-focused training lab in Seattle. Haggerty marveled at the trove of research-based knowledge, but didn't want to blindly implement it on teenage arms. Haggerty was his own best test subject. The driveline program suited him. Lots of throwing with high-intensity and velocity into nets. No hitter, no visualizations gone wrong. Haggerty could let balls fly with impunity. He knew the game could be lonely. This time, it would be self-imposed. I did this whole thing to go through the process to see what I'm capable of, Haggerty says. The angle wasn't to be like, oh, if I can get back and play again. I just love throwing. It's fun. I love the challenge. It was like when he was a kid. Haggerty told John that he wanted to improve at basketball. John bought him a When you get home from school, he said, shoot from both blocks, both elbows, both wings, and the free throw line. Track how many you made. If you do that, you'll get better. If you don't, you probably don't want to improve that much after all. John would come home from a shift at the plan and crack open the notebook. When a particular day was empty, he reminded Haggerty not to complain about not getting better. Most days weren't empty. When the Velocity program worked and his implementation of it on groups of students showed significant gains, Haggerty grew ravenous for knowledge. He read studies he didn't understand, so he read them again until he did. Sometimes I feel like I'm just an idiot, Haggerty says. Like, what are you doing? I want to be as good as I possibly can be at whatever I'm doing. If that takes work, I don't care. In the grand scheme of things, I don't know where that puts me. But I want to be able to figure things out. As the scope of Drivelines business grew and technology enabled pitching labs to flourish, Haggerty embraced the evolution. He played guinea pig again after he bought a Rapsodo unit a camera and radar system that captures pitch velocity, RPMs, and the axis on which the ball spins. It allows pitchers to take a pitch they like. In Haggerty's case, it was two-time Cy Young winner Corey Kluber's breaking ball. Look up the movement profile captured by the tracking system inside Major League Stadiums and try to replicate it indoors. It took hundreds of tries. Haggerty was designing an entirely new pitch for himself through failure. This wasn't baseball, though as much as it was problem-solving, figuring out answers to something that did have them. I just think about that solitude, says Bretta, a renowned volleyball coach in Northwest Ohio. You're in the gym by yourself and say it's not working. What do I do next? There's a lot of elements that have to be present with him to get through that. He had been there. He had known that. It prepared him. His yips weren't gone. They never go away, Haggerty says. He created an environment that helped him cope. His successes were his and others. Austin Davis, that skinny teenager who caught Haggerty's first throw, grew into a man. Ascended through the Philadelphia Phillies system after being a 12th round pick in 2014 and got called up last June. Haggerty flew cross-country the next day. He wanted to see what it looked like when someone from X2 wore a major league uniform. That part puzzled Davis. He always believed someone from X2 would make the big leagues. He just thought it would be Haggerty. When you see your trainer throwing 98, it's like, let's go, Davis says. When you're paying your trainer and he's better than you? This Luke was nasty. His fastball sat in the mid-90s. The radar gun at X2 once flashed 98.9 miles per hour for a pitch off the mound. His breaking ball didn't just mimic Kluber's. Its movement pattern complemented the horizontal ride of Haggerty's fastball. He designed a change-up and another breaking ball. He started throwing no-hitters. They flailed. You just see it, and you're like, Dude, you've got to do something with this, Davis says. People have been telling him that for years. If he truly decided to go for it, it wouldn't be a matter of stuff. It would be whether he was willing to do it. In September, Haggerty met with a woman named Debbie Cruz. She studies the brain. Most of her research focused on golf, another sport with cases of the yips. She wanted to test her neural feedback system on baseball players, and a number of people recommended Haggerty because of how he embraced data. Pitchers are always fun, Cruz says, though she didn't realize how much she would enjoy Haggerty's company until he got to talking about himself, his comeback, his yips. Cruz was fascinated. She asked if he would be willing to answer a questionnaire. He obliged. It covered five categories, adventure mindset, connect, authentic, forward-focused, and courage. On almost every reply, Haggerty was above average compared to the elite athletes Cruz surveys. In only two segments were his answers problematic, negative thoughts and courage. This, Cruz says, is typical of athletes with the yips. It is almost autoimmune, the way they forever lurk, ready to strike at the most inopportune moment. They manifest themselves physically. They poison psychologically. Cruz asked Haggerty to go to an archery range that month. The idea was to get Haggerty away from his main sport and into an unfamiliar situation where he doesn't have coping strategies. Everything Cruz says shows up. When she noticed he was not shooting for the 10-point bullseye target, she asked how often Haggerty adopts his game persona. He stopped to think. That's what was missing. The Gibbs had taken his ability to throw a baseball and his career the first time around. They were not going to kill this chance too. They had infiltrated deep into Haggerty's mind, stealing another fundamental element, his unrelenting competitiveness, the sort that lived inside his lab but was needed to leave it, and torpedoing it. He needed to go through it, Breda says. He needed to take ownership of it, carry it around on his shoulder, and beat it up every day. He had to understand it. He had to dissect it and figure it out. That was important to him. It was important to him to get this step. This step was the biggest. It was what Austin Davis and every kid who walked through X2's door said at one point or another when they saw Haggerty light up a radar gun. Try. Just try. Hold a workout. There were always excuses. There always would be. He's waiting for things to fall into place, Cruz says. He's got his business going. I said you just have to make a decision. And if you're going to go, you take steps to get the business covered, your family covered, everything, so he can go when he makes it. She was right. Both Elon, now eight years old, and her little brother Lincoln, six, were in school. Every day was dragging Haggerty, who turns 38 on April 1st, further from his prime. So, Cruz said, strike the negative thoughts. Summon the courage. It will never be the perfect time. Just choose a date and stick to it. He did. Haggerty would spend the next three months training harder than ever. Getting to X2 at 10 a.m. for two hours of solitude before opening up the place to his clients, refining pitches and hunting an extra mile of velo and working. And then, on January 13th, 2019, in a facility about 20 minutes south of Seattle, he would try to summon his game persona, that long, dormant alpha just ready to reemerge, and validate everything he's done to get there. Finally, a little after 2 a.m., Haggerty's mind stopped racing and he fell asleep in that hotel room on the outskirts of Seattle. He wasn't a crazy old man. The scouts would see that. His sleep was short-lived. Haggerty woke up around 5.30 and started to get ready to throw the most important 27 pitches of his life. Haggerty found his hotel's workout facility and took a soak in the hot tub. Then he jumped into the pool. Back and forth he went. Hot tub, pool, hot tub, pool. His body needed the shock, as it did sustenance. Dylan Rolt, a minor league pitcher who a couple days earlier hit 98 miles per hour during a workout, texted that Haggerty needed to eat eggs and potatoes. That's the Velo breakfast, Rolt wrote. Haggerty needed every last mile per hour he could muster. It was driveline pro day, about 40 scouts from 19 MLB organizations, two teams from the Mexican League, one from Nippon Professional Baseball, and one from an independent league would travel to Kent, Washington, where Haggerty and 20 other pitchers would throw a bullpen session. Rapsoto and Trackman units would capture every moment in exceptional granularity with a spreadsheet that tracked pitch velocity, featuring seven numbers after the decimal point and 28 other measurements for R&D departments across the game to study. Haggerty didn't need to see them. He understood exactly what he threw. He had studied Brooks baseball, baseball savant, fan graphs, the public clearinghouses for modern sabermetric knowledge. His high school coach was right standing 6 foot seven and being left-handed were gifts. So I was being curious. The only way I ever wanted to play again is if my stuff would be at a major league level and an above average major league level, Haggerty says, "I wanted my worst day to be acceptable. That's how I judge if I'm ready or not. You can have the good day. I've seen it. but their average to below average day isn't good enough. All he needed at driveline was the good day. He walked around the facility awaiting his turn. He stretched, he closed his eyes to visualize. He saw strikes. It felt, Haggerty says, like his days before the yips. When Haggerty was at Ball State and even his first year of pro ball, when his team was losing, he would start to pace. Put me in, he would say, even when it wasn't his turn to pitch. Being locked in made the rational slightly irrational. At 11.01 a.m., Haggerty ascended the mound at driveline. He wore a trucker hat, a gray t-shirt, black shorts, and black cross trainers. His first throw, filmed in slow motion from the side, sizzled in at 96.3148491 miles per hour. He threw 26 more pitches, 16 fastballs, 5 sliders, 3 curveballs, and 2 changeups. Haggerty grunted loudly, like a tennis player, one scout in attendance joked, when he threw his fastballs and barely made a sound on his off-speed offerings. His twelfth pitch was a fastball clocked at ninety eight point five miles per hour, the second hardest ball he has ever thrown. His twenty fifth was the Kluber slider, low and away, executed to perfection. At eleven ten AM, nine minutes eight seconds after his first pitch, and more than twelve years after his last pitch that mattered in pro ball. He was done. Nobody there threw like Haggerty. Few anywhere do. His average fastball at Pro Day registered at 96.9 miles per hour. Only four left-handed relievers in baseball last year threw a harder average fastball than Haggerty offered January 13th. None of the other pitchers at driveline came within a mile per hour of him. Even though he struggled to throw strikes and at times missed badly, he was the star of the day. The yips were nowhere to be found. It went well. That's about all Haggerty told Rachel. He was giddy, clearly but didn't want to make a big deal yet. He hadn't said much to her about pro day leading up to it, either. It's not that this entire endeavor was frivolous. It wasn't. And it's not that Haggerty was trying to keep her in the dark, either. Far from it. It's the residual effects of a dozen years ago. The leftover feelings. The knowledge that baseball is cruel and irrational and illogical, and that sometimes, no matter how hard you work, it still doesn't reward you. And Rachel understood that, He told her when he had a good day at work, she told him she was happy. He put up clip after short video clip on YouTube of him throwing a ball hard. She watched them. He turned their patio into a makeshift bullpen. She didn't say a thing. He spent countless nights doing arm exercises while he watched Game of Thrones or Downton Abbey or Endeavor or Stranger Things. She thought nothing of it. Because what was there to think? It's like O'Neary Felita said. Who has ever come back from it? Within 12 hours, the entire organization was on board. The scout loved him. The video folks offered a thumbs up. The R&D department was giddy. The Chicago Cubs wanted to sign Luke Haggerty again, 16 and a half years after the first time. Andrew Bassett worried he was too late. Bassett is the Cubs' assistant director of pro scouting, and he was convinced that another team had seen the raw numbers from Haggerty's pro day session and made him an on-the-spot godfather offer. He called late at night on the 13th and was relieved when Haggerty said he hadn't signed. For 30 minutes, they talked about how the Cubs could maximize the uniqueness of Haggerty's abilities. Forget his height or age. Inside his facility, amid the solitude, Haggerty had built one of the most talented raw left arms in the world. In the meantime, Kyle Evans had been talking with Josh Nipp. Evans is the Cubs' senior director of player personnel, and he had forged a relationship with Nipp, Haggerty's agent. The previous year when Chicago signed reliever Justin Hancock, the familiarity helped. What the Cubs did for Hancock, giving him his first major league opportunity at 27 years old, they could do for Haggerty. It sounded a touch odd to the Cubs when they thought about it, too. A big league debut for a guy selected the same year as Craig Breslow, the major league veteran the Cubs hired this winter as their director of strategic initiatives, an eventual shot at the major leagues with a team that aspires to win the National League pennant for someone who never has been above A-ball? A guy who's older than every current player on the Cubs' 40-man roster, no less. This is a really, really competitive team, Evans told Haggerty during another sales pitch a few days later. The bar to clear to get into the major leagues with the Cubs is really high, but we wouldn't be having this conversation if you didn't have the stuff to clear that bar. Were he to clear that bar anywhere, Haggerty would be the oldest pitcher with no foreign experience to debut in the major league since Hall of Famer Satchel Page in 1948. Only eight pitchers ever have ascended to the majors after their 38th birthday. Jim Morris, whose comeback story was made into a movie, was 35 years old when he pitched for Tampa Bay in 1999. The Cubs were not the only team with grand aspirations for Haggerty. The Milwaukee Brewers, the team that filched the NL Central title from them last season, wanted to sign Haggerty. The Cubs played up their infrastructure, from minor league pitching coordinator Brendan Segara to new major league pitching coach Tommy Hadovy to a group of 10 R&D analysts who nerd out every bit as much as Haggerty when it comes to pitch design. They outline the plan, get him to their spring training complex in Mesa, Arizona, well before minor leaguers arrive and allow Haggerty to dictate his pace. Their indoor facility is similar to X2's. He could start throwing outside and facing hitters when he's ready. They wouldn't push his regular season assignment either. Maybe he stays in extended spring training for more reps. Maybe he pitches his way to AAA out of spring training. Maybe he goes level by level and winds up at Wrigley Field in September. For all the grand scenarios they played up, the Cubs held one distinct advantage over Milwaukee. They were the Cubs. He talked about this, how much they'd done for him, Rachel says. He felt like he didn't give them that back yet, almost like a letdown. This is his opportunity to redeem himself. He owed them something. It's unfinished business that he's getting a chance to fix. For 12 years, Haggerty carried that. The disappointment and the guilt and the desire to right it. As he and Rachel were FaceTiming with Nip and telling him to finalize a minor league deal with the Cubs, Elon was in the kitchen, video chatting with Bretta. Haggerty and Rachel came into the room. They told Bretta the news. She started to cry. Then Rachel and finally Luke. He made it back, Rachel says. There's this sense of achievement. It's just a journey, and it still hasn't ended. During the morning portion of a day-long physical, a doctor studied Haggerty's chart, then Haggerty himself, then the chart again. So, the doctor said, are you a coach? I'm a player, Haggerty said. Well, the doctor said, I saw the age and... Haggerty already is getting used to it. He was almost picked by the Oakland A's in the Money Bowl draft. He's in the same class as Zach Granke, Cole Hamels, John Lester, Charlie Morton, and Rich Hill. Five pitchers with a combined 66 Major League seasons. He is the one driving a white Silverado, pulling into the Cubs' spring facility with a slight grin on his face. Because look where he is. It doesn't bother him when an employer points toward the Major League clubhouse and says, Those are the big leaguers over there. You have to stay over here. If someone stuck Haggerty in a storage closet at the complex, he'd shrug and be cool with it. All he really wanted was for the Cubs to call and tell him he passed his physical. Let's not forget, the graft holding together his left elbow is 15 years old. Combine that with a fastball topping out at 99 miles per hour, and his medicals weren't exactly a foregone conclusion. The polar vortex didn't help either, delaying the results of the physical for two days, making him wait until Friday afternoon when the word finally came. He was officially a cub again, signing a non-guaranteed minor league deal, and he already had his first goal in mind. I want to see how hard I can throw, Haggerty says, and not because I'm being a meathead wanting to throw 100. To me, it's about the intricacies. If I can hit 100, that entails a lot of things. I'm healthy. I'm moving efficiently. I'm being very aggressive over and over again to allow my body to adjust and produce that velocity and my mental space is good. His mental space is good. He knows what he needs to do. Keep throwing hard, yes, but throw strikes, and throw lots of them. Pitchers don't talk their way to the major leagues. Haggerty recognizes that Yips will join him at spring training when he arrives in less than two weeks, and he intends to give them a nice vacation. I'm not going to find it, Haggerty says. When you have those feelings, how do you look at those? Is this going to be a negative experience as soon as it comes up? One thing somebody said and I read is you should feel these things. That means you're doing something important. I try to hold on to that. It's like Bretta always said. Things aren't fair. Sorry. Figure it out. It bred survivalism in her son. He might kick the yips for good. They might return with a mean, nasty streak. Whenever manifests itself, he'll figure it out. The 50 or so people who train at X2... They won't have Haggerty and his preternatural ability to look at a person's body and guess just by how he moves what the velocity on his pitches will be. Haggerty will figure that out. In getting Elon and Lincoln to school, Rachel's job at the Mayo Clinic starts at 8 a.m. Haggerty always takes them in the morning, but if all goes according to plan, he won't be around. He'll figure that out, too. There's just something about Haggerty's from a place named Defiance. They know how to make things work.
0: Joining me now is ESPN's Jeff Passan. Jeff, thank you so much for your time.
2: Pleasure is mine, Mike. Great to be here.
0: First of all, this story, to hear that this story all starts, as you uh, tell us, in a town called Defiance. It seems that if this was in a movie, it wouldn't be believed or a tale of destiny, like when you're a sprinter named Bolt or a meteorologist named Freeze. But not a singer whose last name is Keyes because Alicia Keyes' actual name is Cook. So that's a different story. But anyways, that I, that right there set set a stage for a story that had to be told.
2: I almost didn't want to start the story there either because it, it, it even felt a little trite for a second. I was like, you've been given this gift of a guy in Luke Haggerty. Mm-hmm who has, has come back from just an incredible amount of adversity and you really want to start with defiance, you hack. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, and then I thought to myself, yeah, you know, if, if that's hacky, I really do want to do that because it just embodied things so perfectly. Of course and it did. Somet- sometimes you're given a gift as a writer
3: mm-hmm.
2: and And you feel almost guilty about it. Like, (laughs) could this be any more perfect? Could this have gone any more wonderfully? Is it going to almost feel fake or scripted? But man, as I've gotten older and as I've looked at it over time, I've been like, when you get a gift, run with it and and embrace it and enjoy it and be thankful that you got it because those things are, are few and far between.
0: And But his story, though, as it progresses, it seemed very much as you start to tell the narrative of his life, it was sort of a very, at first, a generic or normal, if you will, MLB tale, like a dominant high school career or school career, then a draft pick. And even his hiccup of Tommy John surgery is not, you know, in today's, the 21st century, this isn't even a, a career killer for anyone anymore. In fact, sometimes you could argue it probably made you better. But then... When you have that, because when you have that formula of athlete plus injury equals lack of performance, that works for everyone. But when you're dealing with Luke Hegarty, what doesn't make sense is when it gets dicey is when you're dealing something as the, for lack of, as you we all use the word, for lack of a more psychological word, the yips, when he could just suddenly no longer throw the ball. When there isn't like, oh, it's your arm, it's your elbow, it's whatever. That's when it gets crazy.
2: Yeah, it's, it's your head. It's, it's the yips. It's the thing. It's the monster. It's mm-hmm. this paralyzing feeling of not being able to do something that came as naturally to you as breathing.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Like if you think, if you think about it, baseball players have most of them been playing for the majority of their lives right. and throwing a baseball is something that, that they don't have to think about mm-hmm. it. The, the quote that I got from Luke on the subject that uh, elucidated it maybe better than anything I've ever heard is You know how you can sign your name? Imagine having a piece of paper in front of you and a pen in your hand, and you have no idea how to write. That's what it felt like for him with throwing a baseball. He had no idea how to do it the right way, he was scared that he was going to hurt someone. He was scared when he was playing catch before the game, that he was going to hit a hot dog bender. Uh, He was scared. He was going to hit a batter and end his career. And the fact that all of this came just in one moment, Mm -hmm. in one very, very unfortunate moment in spring training, when he was looking while with the, with the Florida Marlins, he was looking at Miguel Cabrera and he was looking at Mike Lowell and, uh, looking at Juan Pierre and all of these really good players on the 2005 Marlins, right. and in his head, this seed of an idea came out. Oh, I hope I don't get one of them hurt. <laughs> and right there, like that, it was gone. And the rest of the story is how do how does a man rebuild himself, not just professionally but personally after having what he knows taken away in an instant
0: that was what was so fascinating to to your point of how it started where he would talk about how he would close his eyes and visualize what was going to happen and then when he closed his eyes he visualized that he was hitting batters but it seemed like this was something that it was like almost like something you would see in some like crazy like computer or like matrix type movie where it just seemed like it was like spreading throughout his whole body like a, a psychological yeah. and then physiological response of like this negativity infection
2: and and that's that's why sports psychology is such a fascinating study to me because there is a a deep connection between the brain and the body mm-hmm. and and when the brain is poisoned, like Luke Haggerty's was, it was poisoned with ideas and it was poisoned with fear and it was poisoned with, with this notion that suddenly he wasn't able to do something that that he he knew as well as anything. when it's poisoned like that, that's going to manifest itself in the in the body as well and and it's why it's incredible. Uh, you brought up Tommy John surgery mm-hmm. earlier. It's why you know I've I've spent a lot of time around Tommy John patients. I wrote a book on Tommy John surgery, mm-hmm. and seeing the seeing the difficulty of the rehab, and and yet when they come back, uh, almost always the the athlete is able to throw like he did beforehand, even right. though his. Elbow essentially exploded. <laughs> like that part, I've never understood how athletes are capable of doing that. And, and I suppose with you know with me, if I if I broke my hand and I needed to type again, I, I'd learn how to how to type and do it. But they're going out and doing the same activity that got them hurt in the first place. And, and the psychology of that is, is mind-boggling to me in that they're able to get past that. So when an athlete does get tripped up, whether it's Steve Blass, whether it's Chuck Knobloch, mm-hmm. whether it's Rick Ankiel, whether it's Sergio Garcia, any other number of uh, golfers who have had the yips, yep. this is something that uh, that can afflict anyone. And And you just pray to God that it's not you.
0: And you see, though, to your point about Tommy John, or even like in other sports now with, I mean, for, for decades when I was growing up, when you heard ACL tear in a football player came over, like, sorry, you're done. Like you're never the same. And now there's like a, you know, to steal another bad line. There's a thousand points of light, meaning like a thousand people that have come back for like, oh, so there's that you can always rest on. But you have a fantastic line in this piece where you say the yips are an exercise in loneliness. Nobody is quite sure what to do or what to say. And that was just – because that's something we can all sort of think about because anyone's – like that, even if you're not a professional athlete, if you've been in some sort of mental rabbit hole in a negative space, mm-hmm. you know that whether you have a family or not or friends or whatever, there is a condition and moments y- you can feel like you are the only person in the world and no one has an answer for you. And to be able to come and, back and- for that on a professional level – it seems like it's crushing and it's impossible.
2: It does seem like it's impossible and it's, it's twofold. Let's remember, it's not just you being stuck in your own head, wondering what happened, why it happened, how it happened. How can I rescue myself from this? Mm -hmm. But, but there's almost an ancillary guilt that comes with it. Like I'm, I'm letting people down. I'm disappointing people. Right. Uh, all, all of my friends and family were relying on me. Now they don't know how to talk to me. Is this getting awkward? You know, I spoke yes. with Mark Reed who, who was uh, Luke Haggerty's catcher mm-hmm. when he got returned to the Cubs? He was picked in the Rule Five draft by the Marlins, which is sort of a flyer, fifty thousand dollar pick. And the wow. Marlins saw, oh boy, the guy can't throw a strike, so they sent him back to the Cubs. Mm-hmm. And he, he's in Boise with uh, with Mark Reed, who also was a high round draft pick. And you know, Mark Reed is trying to make it look like when he's catching Luke Haggerty that. It's no effort whatsoever, even though he's diving to the side and jumping up and getting down in the dirt. He wants to make it look as normal as possible. And it's almost this lie, this this unspoken lie that's agreed upon by all the parties. Mm -hmm. We're going to act like this isn't happening. And and everyone knows it's happening, but nobody knows what to say. There is no so you know there there's no vaccine for this mm-hmm. you can't you can't go you can't go to c v s and get a Z pack and the yips go away exactly this is uh, this is something that takes a really long time to address, and even when you address it in in the best and most thorough manner possible, it still doesn't happen and and that's that's the challenge that Luke Haggerty has been facing since you know, 2005 when this came on. Right. And and this is something he's been fighting for for well over a dozen years at this point.
0: And you mentioned how, you know, when, as you say, when the game gave up on him, when it was just, you know, no one could really, like, listen, you can't throw it over the plate. It's kind of mandatory for a pitcher. We're going to move on. And then they got married to his wife, Rachel, and he seemed moving on. And and then it was his career choice, which sounded much less like a career choice and more like the beginning for a quest for answers with his uh, X2 Athletic Performance Center he had out in um, Arizona. And while, well, yes, yeah. he, I mean, he would have most of it, it, his clients were baseball players because that's what he knew. But it also seemed like, you know, as his wife said, it's like it's your identity. So why, you know, so why fight it? But it also seemed like while he was maybe serving some baseball players, in the end, it seemed like the beginning of a new journey for him to figure out, like, what's going on?
2: Yeah, and and this was, you know, this was one of the more confusing parts of the story for me because mm-hmm. it's like, okay, baseball said goodbye. You're mm-hmm. heartbroken at mm-hmm. that. Why are you going back to baseball exactly? Yeah. And and it's just it, it is the classic I can't quit you story. Mm-hmm. And if he couldn't be in the game on the field, I think deep down somewhere, even though he felt like baseball had broken his heart, he still wanted to be around it. It right. still meant something to him. It still mattered to him. And I don't think he went to to start this performance facility with the idea that he was going to get back into the game at all. Mm-hmm. What I do think is that Luke Haggerty is a is a very – trying to think of the right way to put this. He's a very conscientious person. Mm-hmm. And and if he is going to be teaching something that is not widely adopted to teenage kids essentially or or to young professional players like throwing with weighted balls Mm -hmm. or like doing maximum velocity pull downs or like doing so much of the velocity training that's going on right now. uh, You know, all these years later throughout baseball, if he's going to do that, he doesn't want to, Use the kids as his guinea pig. He wants to use himself, and he sure. figured, hey, I, you know, I have a disposable left arm. What what the hell am I going to do with this thing anymore? Right. So he he said to himself, I'm going to try this. I love training. I love. Uh, I'm not going to call it science, but it's it, it's it's science without the the control or without uh, the large sample. But I love the idea of research and. If I can gain something out of it myself, whether it's understanding knowledge feel or or even the ability to throw baseball again, then hey what's you know what's the harm in doing so i, I He had no idea it was going to lead to where it has led though,
0: but it did seem like as he did lean into it and as you know you um describe his research and then he had his relationship with out in with driveline baseball out in Seattle. That like every time like a door opened, he kept like whether it was not necessarily leading to his eventual um, resurgence, but just he was just trying to unlock more and more and more. And it's just it to me, it looked more it, it as to your point, like, yeah, I'm going to test this on myself. Sure. But it also looked mm-hmm. more as it just seemed as like it was a quest for his own answers as well to try to figure out maybe not just to figure it out for myself, but he's not the only person from now in eternity who's going to have this issue. So maybe he can figure something out.
2: It was almost like when the door opened, he wasn't the guy who ran through it. Mm-hmm. He was the guy who poked his head in and said, <laughs> anyone here? Yeah. And when, and when nobody was there, he turned on the lights and he sort of surveyed the room. And he's like, all right, I can, I can try this. And, <laughs> As time is going on, you know the biological clock is ticking, man. Sure, you know he's he's in his thirties now, thirty one and thirty two and thirty three. And while his, while professionally he's uh, he's thriving and his business is doing fantastic, mm-hmm. he's getting to the point now where he's starting to throw a little bit harder, and to the point where some of the players who he's coaching, he's better than, and they're. Sitting there, thinking, okay, if I want to be a professional player, and this guy's better than me, why doesn't he want to be a professional player? And it was, it was really reconciling that point that I, I think was the biggest challenge for him. It's funny, he, you know, Luke Haggerty always was willing to put in the work. Mm-hmm. Like that's, you know, that's the lead of this story, and and that's a a, a thematic through line here because uh, I think it's. You know, another thing putting in work that can be trite. But in 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 this story, I think it it is such a fundamental piece of who he is and Mm -hmm. what he's about that uh, it it was just it was vital, I think, to highlight that. But getting to the point where, you know, you can you can work, but are you willing to to take that? Leap of vulnerability and yeah. and he was not for the longest time
0: mhm, but it's also um but then besides the work, there's always as we said earlier with with rehab and of an injury, like there's that goal or belief or history that has shown you that rehab equals final result, so then in comes uh debbie Cruz, the sports psychologist how Important was she to the whole rebirth of Haggerty. In addition to everything he found out through his uh, athletic performance center, he
3: had.
2: You know, he Luke Luke texted me and he said, "I don't want to oversell what Debbie did," mm-hmm. and and so I tried not to do that in the story. What What his point was, though, is that her words were the thing that eventually pushed him over the edge. I I will admit he did not like look deeply into the psychological profile that she uh, she curated on him. Uh That was more interesting to me. And and I always, I always, um, I always hesitate to play armchair psychologist. So it was nice to have an actual psychologist there (laughs) to explain
3: some of these things to me. Sure.
2: Um, But, but her, you know, she, she has worked with golfers uh, almost uh, entirely throughout her career and uh golfers are the other athletes well known to have the yips i mean look we've we've seen it with markel fultz now in basketball and i don't know if it i don't know if it's been diagnosed by anybody that way but i can tell you as a connoisseur for yips and as someone who sees it markel fultz probably got the yips yeah and 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 so to to see this uh in other sports to understand just how prevalent it really can be. And, and to, to know that there is a path out, not, not a, not a linear one, not an easy one, Mm -hmm. but a path out, uh, I I think is, is very edifying. And part of what makes this story so relatable that, that we're all looking for uh, for the right way out of our troubles. And sometimes it's going to, take 12 years to get there.
0: Right now, by the way, just to let you know, in Orlando, the uh, the yips are defined by Markel Fultz as thoracic outlet syndrome.
2: <laughs> yes, that is correct. <laughs> and that is a, hey, you know what? Um, that, that, that is, that's a real thing. So sure. I'm not going to, I'm not going to say that Markel Fultz does or does not have thoracic outlet syndrome, but before he was diagnosed with that, it looked awfully
0: yipsy. Yeah, he, w- yeah. Would you... Uh, when you double pump fake on a free throw, uh, <laughs> okay. There's many reasons I'm not in the NBA right now, and maybe I don't know what I'm talking about. So <laughs> anyway, well, I, let's just you know let's just leave that to Woj. Right, Woj knows all. Exactly. I let's just say I developed the basketball yips around 18 months old, and I've had them ever since. <laughs> That's why I'm not there. So all of this work that Luke puts in leads to um, that you meticulously talk about in the story but this all leads to a shot at a pro day that the way it played out in my head is like you know you're influenced by things you've seen before i felt like it was like that scene from the rookie except if jim morris was actually way older
2: i was gonna say jim morris is like a baby compared to luke haggerty he's 37 years old now and driveline you know this, this story started with driveline, mm-hmm. I I've known Kyle Bodie who runs driveline uh, for five or so years now. Mm-hmm. I you know I remember I remember talking with him when I was writing the arm, and the first conversation I had with him, he said uh, I'm going to have a pitcher throwing 106 miles per hour by the end of this year, mm-hmm. and and I thought to myself you're totally full of. Sh- and who who is this charlatan that i'm talking with and what you know like what am i dealing with here because there was a there was a chapter in the book on people who were just full of it and i was like okay well here's here's another one of those but uh as time went on i saw kyle was meticulous in his research um had fidelity to the process and Wanted to actually learn things rather than sell something, um, and and that's I think part of what attracted Luke Haggerty to Driveline. Now, and Driveline so Kyle is Kyle the group.
0: For, just real quick, Driveline Baseball is the group out of Seattle that he eventually found when looking for these yes. like different these different baseballs to use,
3: right?
2: Yeah, he was he was looking for a, a four ounce weighted ball, okay. and Driveline sold those, and all of a sudden this relationship started, and it's funny because. Kyle's been telling me for a couple of years now about Luke Haggerty is throwing and he looks great. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, what? You know, that's not a story. A guy throwing in in a facility in Scottsdale is not a story. Right. Tell me when he comes back. Mm -hmm. And so Kyle says to me, hey, Haggerty's going to be back and he's doing our pro day. And I was like, well, you know, I, I'm sure he's not going to be whatever. He's he, It's not worth the story. Then he calls me and he's like, Haggerty sat 97 at his pro day. And I'm like, oh, boy, I probably should have been there. <laughs> I <laughs> Like that's one of those moments where your skepticism about a story uh, comes back to bite you pretty good. And uh, it would have, listen, it would have been nice to be there. Uh, Thankfully, having, having done this job for, you know, 15 plus years at this point, mm-hmm. I, I knew a, a handful of people who were there and who were able to give me on the scene reporting from that day mm-hmm. and, and really fill in the blanks because this was a story, you know, it's it's rare that you write a, you know, a 5,500 word story uh, exclusively with over the phone reporting. But that is what this, uh, that is what this story actually was.
0: So as is- you know, we talk about here he is like sort of back, at, you know, some could say, oh, a little bit better than ever, even though he's older and he doesn't have as many miles on his arm, even though he is older. Is,
3: mm-hmm.
0: is control still an issue for him? Like, or is this something that like, totally. is this, so it's like, so it's sort of like an addiction. It's something that he's going to need to sort of always like one day at a time, mentally focus on one pitch at a time, one moment at a time.
2: Yeah, I mean, if you looked, if you looked at his bullpen session uh, uh, during his pro day at Driveline, like the ball was all over the place. Mm-hmm. The throwing strikes is going to be a big deal. It, it doesn't necessarily mean he's, you know, he's got a a terrible case of the yips. Mm-hmm. Uh, what it does mean, though, is that uh, the difference between him getting out of the spring training complex where he's going to be and, and getting to the major leagues Mm -hmm. is can he throw strikes or not? And he, he believes he will be able to throw strikes. It's going to be in shorter bursts. He's a reliever now, not a starter. Mm -hmm. Um, The stuff is, is clearly elite. Mm -hmm. Like if the stuff weren't as good as it is, he would not have gotten signed, but uh, there were, you know, there were a couple teams going after him and it's, it's going to be hard. I mean, the idea of him possibly making the major leagues is—it's fantastical, and it's a great story. Is it going to have a happy ending? I sure hope so. Like, I would love—I would truly love for that to be the case, just to—to see what it's like. Because, you know, you talked about the rookie. Like, to me, this is an even better story. Sure, it's an even better story if he gets back to the big leagues. It's already—it may even be a better story now already. Just the fact that he's back in organized baseball at all.
0: Well, that's yeah. That's actually my one of my next questions is: now is this anything now just icing on the cake, or does he still have a feeling of unfinished business? Now this won't be over until he takes the mound, even for one pitch or one batter in a major league game.
2: I, uh, you know, I don't know if he's got the in a major league game as. Uh, as the threshold, because I think he realizes how unlikely this is already. But but to say that he's not taking this extremely seriously would be false. Like sure. he wants to pitch in the big leagues. He oh, yeah. wants to pitch for the Chicago Cubs, and uh, you know he's as as much as he's enjoying. I'm not even going to call this like celebrity yet, but, mm-hmm. but sort of this newfound appreciation for what he's doing and what he's done as much as he enjoys that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think he's, he's taken his eye off the prize by any means. I think he, he really, truly, deeply believes that he's good enough to get back there and is going to, and uh, that as difficult as it's going to be, Uh, that's, that is a difficulty that he can oblige.
0: And so in the end, like, will there, I guess the last question I'd have is like an issue of like being at peace and satisfaction where when this ends, no matter how it ends or when it ends, like in any way, the difference between, you know what, you're just not good enough versus you're great, but you still can't find the plate because you have the yips, like where, like, like, or whatever we're finding here. So basically being like, listen, your hundred percent just isn't enough anymore, or man wouldn't like wouldn't it be great if you could just find the plate like like no matter how it ends, one of those two you know, scenarios. I, I
2: almost i almost wonder mike if if there's satisfaction either way mhm i think just getting i think just getting back out there and getting in uniform yep it, you know it it may not feel satisfactory in the moment if he doesn't make it mm-hmm. but but if we're being realistic, it is sure. I mean, the the, the the chances of him getting back to where he is already in the first place are so infinitesimal mm-hmm. that I, I think somebody as rational as him and, and as grounded as Luke is would recognize and appreciate that. But he doesn't have time to do that at this point because there's too much work to be done. That's That sort of thing is for... Uh, a year or five years down the road right uh, but right now there there are more important tasks at hand
0: well i'll tell you he 's given us all a reason to actually really care about the cactus league this year
2: <laughs> I, listen i I am always looking for that reason myself so uh i'm I'm glad to have uh shared that story and and made that uh at least helped uh help that be the case because as a you know what it's like those kinds of stories when they come along uh all all week when i was talking with editors talking with friends talking with people mm-hmm. Talking even with, with the the people in the story. I just kept saying, I hope I don't screw this up. I hope I don't screw this up. I hope I don't screw this up and there was definitely a different word than screw in there. So you, you can imagine uh I just googled you, it. You can imagine the the <laughs> you, like you know when you got a really good one. Yeah you oh, just yeah. know it deep down uh-huh. and uh I I'm let's put it this way, I'm very glad you wanted to talk about it.
0: Well, thank you, both of you, then, for sharing the story. And we'll definitely be uh, following up to see what the next chapter is for Luke Hegarty.
2: Thank you, Mike. Appreciate you having me.
0: Thanks for your time again. Remember to subscribe to Double Truck Stories on the ESPN app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks again. And we'll be back soon with more Double Truck Stories podcasts.